Well, I'm excited. Um, I, I probably say this about every book of the Bible that we preach out of, but I love John. <laughs> and we're getting back into John's Gospel. Uh, for those of you that have been here a while, you know that for the first few months, from Easter uh, up until the beginning of summer, we were doing a series in John's Gospel. And then we took a break over the summer, and we'd been living in the Lord's Prayer out of Matthew 6, which was just an awesome series for me. Um, and I think for many of you as well, just taking us deeper in our prayer life. Um, but I, I am excited to be back into John's Gospel because in John's Gospel we will be encountering not only stories about Jesus, but we will be encountering Jesus. Uh, and that, that's, that's really one of my prayers, one of my predominant prayers for us as a church and for the world, that we would have an encounter with the living Christ. I think that that is the heart cry for every human being, whether we realize it or not. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, simply put, we are only here because of you. You breathe life into us. We're your idea. And we thank you for the gift of today. Thank you for the gift of worship. And we thank you for your word. Jesus, we do not want to play church. We do not want to take up space. We more than want to meet with you today. We need to. You are our source of life. Won't you come alive as we look at your word? And change us forever. Amen. Amen. So, this evening we're going to be looking at John chapter 5, the exact same text that Jamie just read for us. And Jamie, I told you that font was small, right? I mean, you did a good job. Good job. Before we dive into that text, I want us to just take a step back and remember why John wrote his gospel. Why did he write his gospel? I think all four gospels have a key verse, a key verse that tells us what the whole thing is about. I think that John's key verse is quite possibly John 20, verse 31. This is what it says. These things I have, have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing, and that believing you may have life in His name. Everything that we're going to talk about today has to be read through the lens of John's purpose, that we'd believe in Jesus the Christ, and in believing in Him we'd have life in His name. I'm just saying, that's how it starts out. Now, let us dive into John chapter 5. I'm going to take this in sections, and what I'm going to do first is just set the scene, the first four verses. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So they're in Jerusalem, the biggest city in Israel, uh, international hub of travel and trade. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. 
setting. Jerusalem and outside the temple walls, there were these pools or baths, and it was called Bethesda. Bethesda. It was near the sheep gate in the temple wall. And in fact, I'm going to throw a picture up there. Uh, Corey's going to put it up real quick. And you can see the, the large walls on the top of the picture. That is the outer wall of the temple. It's not just massive. This is just a reconstructed model. But that's akin to what it would look like. And these two boxes down here, these are the two pools. Actually, Bethesda, the pool there, was actually two pools. One was possibly uh, for men and the other was probably for women because in baths you bathe. And Anyway, uh, and let's go to the next photo, please. There we go. There's just another angle. Now, if you follow this road into the middle right section, you'll see a little gate in the wall, the sheep gate. This is the gate in the temple wall where uh, often the sacrifices would be brought in from the outside and then slaughtered for sacrifice uh, in, in the temple. So here's the proximity where this whole thing happens at these pools. And... Um, you know, if you're not an architect and you don't know what a portico is, it's just basically a covered area. You see in these, in these bath areas, there's columns and there's covered areas all around. That's all it is, basically a, um, a, a covered area where you can get out of the rain and out of the heat, out of the sun, change your clothes, take a bath, that kind of idea. Now, in Greco-Roman cities, thank you, Corey, you can take that down. In Greco-Roman cities, this is, and Jerusalem is one of them, they have influence from Greek and Roman culture. You would have baths in all kinds of public places. They'd be as common as parks are here in Bellingham. I mean, they're everywhere, right? So you've got baths and um, gyms and theaters and temples. and Well, actually, in Jerusalem, you'd only have one temple. But uh, in other of pagan towns in Rome and things, you'd have many temples. But all of these are public places where people could come and spend time. You, you didn't need a pass to get into the baths. All right? and according to archaeological digs, Bethesda was about a, a football field in length and 20 feet deep. So it was quite a large area um, for swimming or bathing. Now, these public places were places where the poor could come in, the sick, all kinds of people, they could come and sit and beg under those porticos. They could get out of the, the elements and, and just set up shop there and, and beg uh, to get food. Um, the scriptures say that, uh, basically the scriptures point to the fact that the sick and infirm were at these pools at Bethesda, but beggars and all kinds of social outcasts would have been there. You know, besides the sick and the poor, you'd find prostitutes, and bandits and uh, you know, this comes from a scholarly source but dung collectors and I don't think they're like baseball card collectors or collecting bobbleheads you know they didn't have like check out my dung but you know these are people that did the stinky trades they would clean up the stuff and tanners would have been involved you know the people that render animal hides for leather those are the people you know that weren't really accepted by society so they would live outside the city walls and they could come to these public areas to, to beg or to have some kind of social life my favorite one is that sailors were included in this. So if I had been in the Coast Guard back then, I would be a socially expendable person. For, I used to be in the Coast Guard, for those who don't know. Uh, now, the scripture that we're dealing with talks about people with physical infirmities in particular. Because there was a rumor that at this pool in Bethesda, you could get healed by the waters. 
In fact, uh, I don't know what version of the Bible you have. In in the New American Standard, I have in brackets the section in verse 4 about uh, an angel stirring up the water. And and there is this this deal of if you got there first, when the the waters were being stirred, you could get healed. I think in the Pew Bible, there's just no verse 4, and it's actually at the bottom of the page. Regardless, here's, here's the deal. That part of the scripture was not in our earliest manuscript. So like archaeological digs, we have real early copies of John's gospel. Those early, early copies don't have that part of the scripture. What does that mean? Well, not a whole lot. I just wanted to cover it so you're not confused. But basically what that means is it's a later edition and probably a, a commentary on what, why people were there in the first place. Now, archaeologists have shown that that pool was fed in, by a couple of different sources and in certain seasons there was a spring that would intermittently jet up water in the pool. So when that spring would go, you'd see bubbly water coming out and, well... Maybe if you didn't understand springs, you would think that's something supernatural. Maybe there's an angel stirring up the water. In fact, uh, other sources show that there was uh, a lot of minerals in this water. They say that the water was red, so maybe it had some iron in it and some other minerals that would uh, have healing properties. Ironically, or maybe not, Bethesda means house of outpouring. Now, outpouring, of course, has to do with water, but maybe even outpouring of blessing or spirit or healing. Pools, red water, healing, being stirred up, all kinds of reasons why these infirm people would be there. But I don't know if you've heard of like healing shrines today where you go to the statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe or this or that. And there, there's lots of people who say, you know, I've been healed there or not. But, and it's probably true. Some of these are probably true. But if healings were really that consistent at the Pool of Bethesda, think about what that would mean. It would mean the actual fountain of healing or the actual fountain of life. Wars would have been fought over these pools. You'd still have these pools guarded today. So chances are that an occasional healing, maybe on a skin lesion or maybe even a miraculous healing from time to time happened there. But by and large, it was probably just a source of hope for people who had a lot of problems and who felt very isolated. So the baths were baths. For those who were sick and had no other options, they probably offered some kind of hope. Hope in a miracle, hope for deliverance, hope for a new life. That's really what we all hope for, I think. Let's look at this next section. Verses 5 through 9. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet, his bedroll, and he began to walk. So now the focus of our story narrows. We look at one man, one man who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus approaches the man and says something that on the surface may seem almost absurd. Do you wish to get well? 
Do you wish to get well? I mean, imagine yourself sitting there for 38 years waiting for some bubbles in the water to come up so you can get well. Jesus comes up and asks you, do you wish to get well? I I don't know. On face value, it's almost like, duh, of course I want to get well. I've been here waiting to get well. What kind of a question is that? Well, as I mentioned before, sick people like the man in our story were considered outcasts. In fact, unless they had family to care for them, they, they were usually forced out of the city at nighttime. They would have the gates locked behind them. They weren't included in the normal social structure. The story implies that the man had no family, had no one to put him into the water. So the group of beggars he associated with, the, the, the ragtag groups of bandits and prostitutes and, and, and sick and lame, those were his family. He had no way of earning a living, no trade. He'd been sick for 38 years. What he knew how to do was beg. No trade. No social network in the normal world. So what would happen to this man if he were actually healed? He wouldn't know anyone. He wouldn't know how to earn a living. So Jesus' question isn't really frivolous. It's life-alteringly serious. If the man gets well, he has to die to life as he knows it. Because life will never be the same. Now sure, it'd be great to be physically healthy, but at least in his current state, he has some friends, doesn't he? I don't know how good of friends they are, but he's got people that accept him. He knows how to eke out a living. He knows how to get by on the sympathy of others. If he gets healed, he becomes responsible for his actions. If healed, he has no more excuses. If healed, he would have to find a new life. New life is a life that Jesus offers. But it's not easy. It's not easy. I was having coffee with Kevin Murphy this week, and Kevin is a counselor. And he spoke of a term just... I don't even think he meant to, and it's not a technical term... But it just struck me as so powerful. The term is the invisibly disabled. Invisibly disabled. You, we may not walk around with physical infirmities all the time. But how do we classify feelings of anxiety? How do we classify feeling socially awkward or isolated from other people? What of the functional alcoholic? or the sex-addicted professional, or the workaholic, or those addicted to other people's praise and adoration? What of those suffering from depression or narcissism? These disabilities aren't as easily detected as physical disabilities are. But Jesus' question is still the same. Do you wish to get well? It's a monumental question. And it may only seem like a minor detail or psychologizing of the text, but I don't think so. Did you know that of all the gospel stories, the four gospels, one-fifth of all the stories have to do with healing? Now, Jesus heals people because He loves them. Jesus heals people because He loves them. But He also heals as a sign, a sign to show what life in the coming kingdom will be like. When the kingdom comes in fullness, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more social isolation. He 
His healing gives us a glimpse of what's to come. And Jesus invites us to the promise of abundant life. Life where we rely on Him and not our other crutches. He doesn't mislead us into thinking we can escape suffering and hardship. Not until the kingdom comes. But He does call us to trust Him. To deal with life instead of the other things that we trust. Like our addictions. Like our invisible disabilities. I suspect that each of us has an ailment. Or two or five. Each of us probably has something we're waiting for deliverance from. How do we want to be delivered? And when? Jesus asked the man, Do you want to get well? And the man almost dejectedly tells Jesus, There's just no one to put me in the pool. The man is waiting for mythological waters. Some wait on the lottery. Others put their hopes in techniques or books. And worst of all, a lot of us trust ourselves, don't we? Maybe you've come to the place, the very healthy place, of realizing that those things just don't work. Maybe you've come to the healthy place of recognizing, you know, I'm at my wit's end with this, and only Jesus can help me. Maybe you've been disappointed enough times with techniques and books that you know Jesus is the only place to turn. One of the great church fathers, St. Augustine, was quite a celebrity before he became a Christian celebrity. He was an orator. Now, I know in our culture that athletes and actors and actresses, those are the celebrities, but in Jesus, or not Jesus' day, but in Augustine's day, if you were on the debate team and you were good, you'd be really popular. Because oration was basically like lawyers standing up and eloquently arguing against the other. And if you were good at that, you had crowds around you. And Augustine was one of the best ever. And he had quite a thing for the ladies. Even at a young age, he he recognized that this lust in him uh, was killing him, and he wanted to be rid of it. Uh, But he struggled with, with, did he really want to be well? And here's a quote from Augustine. He says, I was an unhappy young man, wretched as the beginning of my adolescence, when I I prayed to you for chastity and said, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. And he's talking to God here in his confessions. He says, I was afraid that you might hear my prayer too quickly, that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I preferred to satisfy rather than to suppress. There's a little bit of that in all of us, isn't there? How many of us want to get well? but just not yet. How many of us know we often lean on false crutches of sinful addictions and patterns of living, but we just can't imagine life any other way? Do we wish to get well? The story In the story before us, Jesus says to the man, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Pick up your, your little bed made out of reeds and walk. When Jesus says, get up, in the Greek, that is the same term used for the resurrection. The same term used for the resurrection. 
Jesus isn't simply restoring this man. He's bringing a new reality from outside our world. He doesn't just want to wipe our slate clean. He wants to introduce new heavenly possibilities of living. Resurrection is not resuscitation. It's not a do-over in the same kind of life. It's new life altogether. It may be hard to imagine doing life any differently than you're doing right now. But we can trust that the life Jesus has to offer is more than we can imagine. More than we can imagine. The man trusts Jesus and his faithful obedience is is rewarded. He just gets up and he's healed. He's healed which should bring great joy to the man and to everyone around him. But it doesn't. Look at this reaction in verses 10 through 13. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made you well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Everyone should have been rejoicing that this man who was ill for 38 years is now able to carry his bedroll. But enter the religious leaders. I want to remind you that in John's Gospel, he has a very specific way of writing about the religious leaders. So he often calls them the Jews. John, the guy writing this, he's a Jew. Jesus, the one he adores, he's a Jew. All the disciples are Jews. So John, the Gospel writer, doesn't have a problem with Jews. When he says the Jews, it's a technical term for the religious leaders. Okay? In fact, Leslie Newbegin, he suggests that as the church today, when we read that term, the Jews, we should insert our names in there. Because it's really a check. Are we, the church, being as stubborn and hard-hearted as the religious leaders in Jesus' day? I just want to get that out there. So John tells us some new information that we didn't have at the beginning of the story. That Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, the most holy day of the week, the day of rest. No labor was supposed to be done on the Sabbath. This guy is carrying his bedroll around. The religious leaders didn't see the healing. They didn't rejoice with the man. Instead, they're too bent out of shape about this guy doing some menial labor. I totally get where they're coming from. They're trying to honor God, right? They're trying to keep the Sabbath holy. But in doing that so strictly, they entirely miss God working right in front of them. I read a story not too long ago about a new church plant somewhere in the, uh, the southeast of our country. And this new church plant was renting space from a brewery in the morning. They were having some quite a lot of success actually reaching people who wouldn't normally walk into a church building but they would go into a brewery and and worship God there. The brewery didn't open until like 11.30 so it was a perfect setup. They could rent it in the morning and the local newspaper actually wrote up a big story about this church and how they were doing many good things for the community and lots of people's lives were being changed. All good press from the normal newspaper. But there were some Christian publications, specifically out of some of the large, more conservative churches in the area, that had nothing good to say about this new church. Because they were meeting in a place that after church was all over, there was alcohol served. Now, it doesn't even matter what we think about alcohol, does it? 
They're simply just meeting in the building. These groups completely missed what God was doing because they're culturally conditioned to think that something is so bad you could never walk in a building. Do it. You know, I realize that as a church plant, you know, we think we're, we're kind of cutting edge. We're less than a year old and we're doing things a little differently. And I don't think that anyone uh, has specific hang-ups right now. But I think that this text is a reminder to us never, never to get so set in how we do things that we miss how God might work outside of our boxes, outside of our realm of possibility. I mean, newsflash, God is God. Right? He can do whatever He wants. He wants nothing more than to see people's lives changed. To see people come to know how much He loves them. And He can do that in ways that will, that will rock our world. Okay? So as a church, we need to hold each other accountable to make sure that we're not getting so set in our ways that we totally miss how He's working. So then Jesus finds this man in verse 14. And this is just kind of weird, right? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So that nothing worse happens to you. First of all, just a little side note. Isn't it cool that Jesus finds the man in the temple? This guy had probably been kept out of the temple, at least the inner parts where the Jewish men could go, because of his infirmity. And now that he's healed, he can actually go into the temple and worship like a regular person. Maybe he hadn't done that for 38 years. That's pretty cool. Jesus finds the guy, asks him this, or tells him, you know, you've become well, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the question is, what is Jesus really saying here? What is he really saying here? Is he saying that the man's sin caused his ailment for 38 years? Well, we don't really know for sure. We do know that sometimes in Scripture, there are stories about people, like in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they sin and they get, they get zapped dead. So we know that sometimes there is direct consequences for sin. But then there are other examples like in John chapter 9, which we'll get to in a few weeks, but there's a blind man there and the disciples say, Who sinned? This man's parents or him? And Jesus said, This guy isn't blind because of someone's direct sin. And there's other examples of that. Here's what we do know. All of our suffering... All of our pain is a result of sin in general. When sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve, everything changed. Everything changed. That paradise in the Garden was shattered. Disease now happens. We deteriorate physically, mentally. And so, yes, general sin causes it. I don't think that's Jesus' point here, though. When Jesus says, sin no more, lest nothing worse happen to you, I think what he's talking about is Gehenna. Hell. Life without Jesus. You know, it's great, buddy, that, that you're healed now and you're able to socialize and, and you, you know, you've been sick for 38 years and I made you healthy. But now, now, you're made well. 
Now trust me and not the ways of the world. Trust me, not your crutches and addictions. Trust me, not yourself, and you will find eternal life. That's really the word to all of us. If we don't put our trust in Jesus, there's a lot worse things than being sick or suffering in this life. There's eternal life without Jesus at stake. The question is, and what the scripture is about, is much more than the sick man. It's about Jesus. Why trust Jesus? Why? Because He speaks and acts with the authority of the Father. He is the one who is about the Father's work. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing the things on the Sabbath. But He answered and said to them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He was not only breaking the Sabbath, but He was also calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. John tells us why Jesus is trustworthy. His deeds were either the deeds of a blasphemer or the deeds of God. Sophia woke up early today, and she's been doing... More regularly, unfortunately. No, this is good. So I'm down in my chair this morning. I'm reading through the scripture. She says, Daddy, can I, will you read this to me? So she gets up on my lap and I read the story and she says, Daddy, why did those people want to kill Jesus when he was doing nice things for other people? Three years old. The religious leaders looked at Jesus and they saw a threat to their authority. They saw a threat to their way of life. Self-preservation set in and they decided to kill Jesus instead of let Him change them. But the story is all about Jesus. John wants us to ask the same question that Sophia asked. He wants us to look at the two things. Are we being like the religious leaders? Or are we rejoicing in all the wonderful ways that Jesus can break through our crutches? our infirmities, even if they're invisible. What do we do with Jesus and the offer of new life? Jesus will, He will change your life. And that's good news. Wherever you're at, as stuck as you think you are, the Gospel says that Jesus will change your life. The question is, will you receive it? Do you wish to get well? Or are you wishing to get well, just not today? If you're, my experience is that this is a very thoughtful group. And probably what's happening, if you're like me, is you're saying yes to both of those answers. I want to get well, but not yet. Maybe our prayer for today is that we ask Jesus. 
to help us want to want to get well. If that's the step you want to take today, would you pray with me? Jesus, I marvel at your patience. I am in awe of your grace. And I am humbled by your power. I thank you for the good news that you can, you will change us. That you will set us free. Lord, for those for those who want to be made well and are struggling with just not yet, our prayer, O oh God, is that you would cause a change in our very hearts, our very spirits. That by your grace, we would be hungry for you. That by your grace, we would be hungry for the life that you offer, that, that Zoe life, that eternal life, that God-like life. Our prayer, Lord, is that our hearts would beat for the things that you, your heart beats for. That we would love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. And instead of being like waves tossed in the sea, that by your grace you would help us to be consistently drawn to you. Lord, we're done trying to be strong. We're ready to trust you for our strength. Jesus, would you show us what that looks like, what that could look like? We want to follow you. Amen. How do you be broken?